So I walk into the community center on Sunday and I met with, what happened to your face? <laughs> you ever get met with that? What happened to your face? That was a great greeting. Last Saturday night I had a collision. I wish I had a better story, but <laughs> there, the picture must have went up on the screen. Um, yeah, I, I wish I had a better story, but I had a collision with a compost bin. Uh, I got a little dinged up. I got a broken nose. I've got stitches, a few stitches. But the doctor said it could have been a lot worse. So I'm at the ER, and I'm checking my emails. And that same morning, I'm not, no dramatic effect here. That same morning, um, a number of us on staff, we got an email where someone felt prompted that same morning to say, quote, praying for your protection and blessing in all all your work. Now, that could have just been coincidence. Or maybe it was more than that. And what if it was? You know, what if, as we talk about God and sing about God, what if, what if God is actually real? And what if God wants to intersect with our everyday life more than we give him credit for? What, what if that's true? And And what if he is not just able, but desires and is speaking to us, and we could tap into that. And what if he wants to work through us and do these things? What if all of us could experience more of this intersection between what we consider the physical and what we consider the spiritual, and what if we began to see it as all more one than we give it credit for? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. But rather than transition into that with my face, I got another illustration that we'll do. Um, So here's the illustration. Back in 1983, there was a song that quickly shot up to number one. Raise your hand if you know this song. Go ahead and fire it. If you know this song, raise your hand. Oh, we got lots of people know this song. You get a thousand points. All right, hands back down. Now, raise your hand if you know the band that sings this song. All right, another thousand points. All right, one more. If you know the lead singer, put up your hands. All right, 1,000 points for you. There we go. All right, we can bring down the music. They should never let anybody else cover this song. Whenever you hear someone else sing the song, they just they don't, they don't have what David Lee Roth and Van Halen had. Well, if you've never done this before, I want to encourage you to go to YouTube and type in David Lee Roth and brown M&Ms. If you've never done that, you, you, you've, got to, you've got to listen to him in his own words tell the story about the brown M&Ms. Here's a very short version of it. we got so much to cover today. So when they were on the concert tour for this, this song and this album, they embarked in a concert tour that was pretty much unlike anything the world had ever seen. This was one of the, if not the most elaborate concert tour in history. These shows stretched the limits of the venues they were going into. And so they had this this contract that was about this thick that had all of the requirements that they needed to pull off this show. It was just, it was just huge. And embedded in the list of all of the things that they said are requirements, necessities, was Article 126, which read, and I quote, there will be no brown M&Ms in the backstage area upon pain of forfeiture of the show with full compensation. That rider was in there. And how do you think the media reacted to that? They're like, you divas! 
Are you kidding me? You are so big on yourself that you can't even have a brown M&M backstage. You're going to call the whole thing off. Well, listen to what David Lee Ross says in his own words about that. It was strategic. It was intentional. This guy was actually brilliant. It had nothing to do with them being divas. It had everything to do with, are the people in this venue paying attention? They intentionally buried it in the middle. So then what he could do is, instead of checking everything, he could go backstage, go, did they get all the brown M&Ms out? If they got the brown M&Ms out, then I've got some confidence that they did the rest of the things correctly. And this was huge. This was huge because if those other things were overlooked, it could damage equipment, it could damage the venue, it could cause distractions in the show, it could even put people in danger. So they want to make sure that those people were checking out the details. All right, that may be interesting. What does it have to do with today's text? Let's talk about that. If you're just joining us, we are in a series that we're calling Dear Suburban Church. It's based on a real first century letter that we call 1 Corinthians. And we're finding out that those people were an awful lot like us. In this letter that we call 1 Corinthians, the section that we are going to look at, we started last week, we're going to look at it again today, we're going to look at it again next week. This section, this is fascinating stuff, especially for moderns. This section describes supernatural signs, supernatural wonders. And it's talking as if these things happen, really happen. And according to the scripture, they were happening on a regular basis in Corinth. And as Paul describes a number of these supernatural manifestations that he refers to as spiritual gifts, he does something really surprising. As he's listing out all these gifts, many of which are miracles, these kind of things, and we go, whoa, I want to hear more about that. He devotes almost an entire chapter to one of the gifts that he himself says, this is not one of the higher gifts. A gift that we call, that he calls, the gift of tongues. If you're taking notes, I want to write, invite you to write this down. The spiritual gift of tongues is analogous to Van Halen's Brown M&M test. I will stand behind that statement. I would say you can learn a whole lot about a person. You can learn a whole lot about a church. You can learn a whole lot about a denomination based on how they approach the gift of tongues. The way that people approach tongues is going to reveal a whole lot. It's going to reveal about how they respond and believe and what they believe about the Holy Spirit. It's going to affect what they believe about being a Christian. It's going to affect how they approach Scripture. It's going to affect how they understand things like prayer and baptism. By by finding out what they believe about tongues, you will learn about how they measure often spiritual maturity and how they handle other difficult and controversial passage, passages in the Bible. It's like a brown M&M. You learn what people think about tongues. You learn a whole lot about how they approach a whole lot of other things. One of the other things you're going to find, too, about this, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, the manner in which people approach tongues will tell you a whole lot about whether they actually go to the Scriptures and see what the Scriptures themselves say, or if they go in and say, well, here's what my denomination says, or here's what my church teaches, or here are my presuppositions going in, and they'll filter that through. It'll really... It'll really help you with a lot of those things. So I, I think you can learn all of this and so much more. That's your brown M&M. What do people think about tongues? I came across this quote as I was doing my prep. It says this, It's not so much what we don't know, but what we think we know that obstructs our vision. Can I get an amen to that? So I said, no, that is absolutely true. I've seen it countless times. 
And this is certainly true with tongues. I remember I used to work at a charismatic church for about 12 years. And I remember that I had to confront uh, one of my coworkers because this individual was teaching that, and they were doing this with confidence. They said, when you speak in tongues, the Bible says the devil can't understand you. I said, where is that in scripture? Well, there, there is in the Bible. I said, where? Is that in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. But yet they were teaching this with confidence. And I've seen that so many times. People have say these things about tongues with confidence that they say is in the Bible, but it's not. They, they've heard it somewhere else or it's something that they thought. In fact, sometimes what you'll hear people teaching about tongues, the Bible says the opposite. And this has come from people who really believe that gift, embrace that gift. All right, so that's a brown M&M. You know, they do that with tongues. They're going to do other things too. They're going to say, oh, the Bible says this, the Bible says this, but they haven't fact-checked it. All right, on the other end of the continuum, the other end of the continuum, I remember I was asked one time to be a part of a live radio show. They were doing it at the old Northwestern bookstore in Harmar Mall. Does anyone, oh, some of you remember the, come on. So yes, this the bookstore at, at uh, Harmar Mall, Northwestern bookstore. So this is, I'm going to date myself here. It was back when I was a youth director. It was me and the goldfish guys. See, I know the goldfish guys. And this other person, I won't name him, who was the host. He was the host of a radio show at the time. And now he's uh, he has this um, a bunch of videos that he puts out on YouTube. Well, on one of his latest videos that he put out on YouTube, he did it on tongues. And this guy, he has an edge to him. Like, I almost walked out of the radio show because he just had this edge to him. And this, like, self-righteous type of edge. And so here he is in this video, and he's just in a condescending way saying, how are these these so-called charismatic churches, how, how, how are they, look how they're doing tongues all wrong. And he has about seven different things that are Bible verses that he says, look, they're doing this wrong. Well, he left out about seven Bible verses that contradicted what he just condemned them for. So this goes both ways. You know, there's a brown M&M in this guy's viewpoint too, where he thinks certain things aren't possible. He has a limited understanding based on his scriptures that he's cut and pasted as well. I have a whole lot more respect for people who take something difficult like this and they go and they say, okay, where does the scripture actually go? What does the Bible actually say? And and so I have a lot more respect for someone like Gordon Fee. I, I mentioned um, him with one of the books I recommended for your summer reading list last week. Here's how people approach the scriptures with humility and courage. will approach a passage like the one we're going to look at today. Here's a quote from one of his books. He says, In some ways, these issues present a no-win situation, since most Christians have a vested interest on either side, and they tend to come into biblical texts with their convictions in hand. Here in particular, let's talk about tongues, the issue is clouded by the fact that in a mere 13 letters, we don't have everything that Paul ever taught or said on a lot of questions, especially on this sticky one. But we do have some data, so let's see where it leads us. I love that last sentence. It's scary. It takes a lot of humility. It's confusing, but let's do that. Let's just see where the scripture leads us. Let's do what he suggests. If you're taking notes, I want to invite you to write this down. What can we learn? What can we learn about a distinctly Christian experience that's scripturally anchored, spirit-fueled from Paul's extended teaching on tongues? He says more about tongues and prophecy than, than all the rest of them in this section we're going to look at today. Why is he zeroing in on those? 
Last week, we focused on the intellectual, theological framework. Today, I want to focus on the experience, and I think we can learn a lot about the experience based on that brown M&M. So that's what I want to try to do. So let's start with this, taking notes. Um, what can we learn from the, the teaching on tongues? Our experience with the Holy Spirit was meant to be more than, I'll, I'll use this phrase, personal Pentecost. Over the years, I've heard a lot of really good intentioned people, really good intentioned people, when they're talking about the experience with the Holy Spirit and encounter with the Holy Spirit, they'll use the phrase personal Pentecost. I want to present to you that's misleading because as you look at when I, the scriptures, especially the one we're going to look at next week, it's about the body. It's about together. It's about us as God's people. It's not meant to just only be a personal experience. Um, we're going to focus primarily on chapter 14 today, but it's important to note what comes immediately before. And chapter 12, chapter 12 is all about Paul's vision for how this is like a body. These spiritual gifts are meant to be something that everyone brings what God has given them, and together it builds up the body of Christ. One of the reasons that Paul felt compelled to write chapter 14, at least as best I could discern it, is because of the way that people were using this gift of tongues. They weren't using it to build the body up. In fact, it was setting people apart as better than somebody else or, or, or in a divisive type of way. It's also important to note that chapter 12 flows right into chapter 13. Chapter 13 is all about how Paul, in fact, Paul just says this straight up. He goes, the gift of tongues, it's going to cease someday. It's going to cease. What's not going to cease is love. And if you don't have love, the gift of tongues, that's like a, a clanging gong. He said a noisy gong. So I invite you to write this down too. Without love, the spiritual gifts are ineffective or worse. If people are claiming to have these spiritual gifts, but they're not operating with a paradigm of love or from a place of love, they're ineffective or worse. In 12 years of working in a charismatic church, I can't think of a gift that was more visible or more prized or more talked about than the gift of tongues. This thing was really, really emphasized. And it wasn't unique to that church. I'm seeing some nods from people who are there with me. And I'll also say this, in those 12 years I was there, I never once heard somebody else on staff do a study from chapter 14. And chapter 14 is the chapter of the Bible that says the most about tongues more than any other place you can find. So why are we emphasizing that gift and not going to the place where it gives us the most instruction about it? So let's take a look at uh, what I consider the brown M&M clause. Here it is, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. The brown M&M clause when it comes to spiritual gifts. If you have your Bible with you, please open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, we're going to start with verses 1 through 3. If you don't have a Bible at home, we want to encourage you. You can go right now, hit pause, go to Bible.com. They have a great free Bible app that you can download. All right, so here we go. Verses 1 through 3. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men and women, but to God. For no one understands them. They utter mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. All right, let's hit pause. Let's talk about that a little bit. Here you see Paul bringing together things that he just talked about. He, he had just come out of chapter 13, which is, we call it the love chapter. So here he's tying all this together. These spiritual gifts that he talked about in chapter 12, love, all of that. He says, without love, you're missing the point. And if you're going to pursue what love looks like lived out, then you're going to earnestly desire these gifts because they're great at helping people and building up the body. 
it was really fun to see, um, as I'm looking at what the scholars have to say about all this, really fun to see how Gordon Fee did his best to tactfully address something that was a huge fad in the 90s and early 2000s. This was, there was a huge fad back then where everyone was, do, not everyone, many churches were doing what they called a spiritual gift analysis. You would take a spiritual gift test. Find your spiritual gift. And it was so fun watching Gordon Fee wrestle with that. He was trying to be tactful, but he had to confess that he, th- these things are cringeworthy. He says, you know, from a scholarly standpoint, his words were not exactly that. His words were, and I quote, while I appreciate the motivation behind this movement, the New Testament scholar in me winced, he said. It winced. You know, and he gave a number of reasons, including almost all those assessments, they take the spiritual gifts way out of context. Way out of context. Number two, there's all kinds of nuances that, that a quiz just can't address. And then another one is this. Most of the assessment tools, they focus, and this is a quote, on discovering what the Corinthians would have known by experience. Meaning if you've got to take a test, it's probably not the thing, unless you just don't know what to call it. All right, let's go back to what the text actually is teaching. Why is Paul about to say more about tongues than just about any other gift? I invite you to write this down too. Scripture instructs us to excel in gifts. We just read this. Excel in gifts that build up Christ's church. We're, we're encouraged to excel in these gifts, especially the ones that build up the church. In the Corinthian churches, apparently, many people were not using the gift of tongues to build up the church. It became something else. Well, I first was exposed to the gift of tongues right around the time in high school, right around the time when I was considering walking away from Christianity altogether. And I get it. I I get why that is an intriguing gift. Because I remember thinking, as someone ready to walk away, I remember thinking, okay, if out of my mouth start coming words that in a language I don't understand, that other people don't understand, that would be pretty convincing to me. So I'm like, why would I not want that? And then two... I was being taught so much then that this is a sign that you're in. This is a sign that God has really accepted you and brought you into his kingdom. So I'm like, this checks a whole lot of boxes. But looking back, at least at that age, my understanding of the gift of the tongues, it was a brown M&M about me. What it was revealing about me is, God, here's my terms. Here's my terms. If you do this, then I'll know you're real. See how this works? I mean, these things, the brown M&M, I'm telling you. In many, many churches and in many, many Christian circles, tongues, it gets elevated. It's really something. You know, Paul is, Paul is saying, don't elevate this thing. And it gets elevated. It gets elevated. And, and there's this elitism often that gets associated with it. Okay, those who speak in tongues, they're at another level. And you want to be like them. Often I, I see that. That's not every church, but it is in so many churches where tongues are, it's looked upon as this is something that brings you to this next level in your spiritual development. Is that what Paul teaches? Read, read chapter 12. Pastor Jason's going to look at it next week. Read it. Paul apparently goes the extra mile to remind people, hey, every gift matters. And if you're keeping score, he wanted to make sure that people knew tongues is not on the top of the list. Not on the top of the list. He doubles down on all of that in chapter 14. Let's go back to our text. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. Again, these are, these are his words. Now, I, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one that prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Unless someone what? Unless someone interprets that the church may be build, built up. All right. So you're going to see in chapter 12, he's really talking about worship services here. And so if it's happening in public, 
he really says there should be there should be um, should be interpretation. All right, Paul's going to spend a lot of time now in these passages we're going to read, comparing and contrasting the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. Let's talk just for a minute. What does he mean when he's talking about those two terms? Paul doesn't provide a comprehensive definition, so it makes it a little tough. You can't find any place where Paul spells all this out and goes, here's exactly what these two things are. But he does say enough in chapters 12 through 14 to give us some actionable instruction. So let's start with tongues. Paul uses a Greek word for tongues that refers to either your physical tongue or a language. That's that's the word he uses. What sets the spiritual gifts of tongue apart is that it's spiritually it's a spirit inspired utterance and he it appears to be usually only understood if someone can interpret it. Now this is really interesting. In that time and in that place, he was using Greek, he was in this Greek culture, there were other religions that had their versions of tongues. But generally speaking, from what they could piece together, it was more of a thing like you get in a trance-like state, and then then you would have these these words coming out that nobody nobody could understand. This was different than that. When this gift was used in a public setting, what was said was intended to be interpreted for the purpose, not of setting someone apart as I'm the spiritual, you're not, for the purpose of bringing something helpful to one another. It wasn't a way to separate or elevate certain people above others. Scholars who provide commentary on this section, they remind us, this is so important, they remind us that 1 Corinthians was a disciplinary letter. Paul was writing because he had to correct some people on a number of things. And he calls out people who thought of themselves, I'm spiritually mature, look at me because I'm speaking in tongues. But what many of these people didn't see is their pride was blinding them to the reality that they're acting like, Paul says, you're acting like spiritual infants. In the context for this specific conversation, 12 through 14, it's about how chaotic that made their worship services. Because everyone's just talking and no one can understand what's going on. And it really made things difficult. Many scholars, this is interesting too, many scholars, they said, this really has got some parallels with Tower of Babel and Acts 2. You know, how back then in the Tower of Babel, all these people got divided because of their pride. They're trying to build this tower to the heavens. And so their language tore them apart. And in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, people could hear their own languages being spoken in a way that then spread the word um, to all these different nations. So that's actually one form that tongues can take biblically. It's a missional form where a person gets empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak God's word in a language that they don't necessarily understand themselves, but others can. And it's interesting, uh, another one of the books I recommended last week, Empowering Evangelicals, they tell a number of stories. And so they tell the story of this guy named Rob. Rob was volunteering in a hospital and so he's making the rounds and he, he's invited into this room where there's a, a woman who's dying. And she's the mom and the family's gathered around and they're from the Middle East. And so Rob's like, I don't know how to pray. And in this situation, so he just quietly near where the mom was, just quietly started praying praying in tongues. And he, he thought, this is kind of strange. It's almost like she was res- like responding to him in her language. And he's, he didn't know what was going on. So Rob finished praying. And one of the family members says, hey, when did you learn Farsi? And he's like, I don't speak that language. And they said, yeah, you do. You were just praying in our native tongue to my mom. And he's like, what? Yeah, he said, 
you were telling my mom that she's supposed to receive Jesus. <laughs> and she was saying, okay. <laughs> and then he, he ended up saying that three more people from that family are like, oh, I want in on this too, <laughs> that night. Now, I'm not aware of Paul ever referencing this, this, this use of tongues where it's a language that other people understand in their native tongue. Paul doesn't really talk about that. But in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, he links, at least appears to link, speaking in tongues to what he calls tongues of angels. And these tongues require an interpreter, which is another spiritual gift. As a side note, this is where my mind went. As a side note, I started going, it'd be really interesting to study if this is a possibility, where like in Acts, it says they were hearing these people speak in their native tongues. I wonder if they actually received the gift of interpretation in that moment. And if that's what happened with this woman, I, I don't know if that's how it works. Anyway, all right, but here's what we do know. What we do know, if we continue with the text, Paul is very, very, very clear. If we're in a setting like this and you want to speak in tongues, he says don't do that unless someone can interpret. Otherwise, it's just it's not helpful to, to that service. That's what he says. But what he also does, and this is where people go too far, what he also does, he refers to a private devotional use of tongues. And he held that in really high regard. And he doesn't teach that interpreter is necessary or even helpful in that situation. So for tongue, for Paul, tongues is a valuable gift. That's how he understands it. And it's very, very helpful if you have the right structures in place and the right context. So that's tongues, prophecy. It was really interesting because I've always kind of got tripped up on this. When Paul's talking about prophecy, it's like, it doesn't sound like he's using the kind of prophecy that I'm used to talking about. That's because he's, he's, he's not. It's not that he's saying the Old Testament prophecy was wrong or any of that kind of stuff. He just, when he's talking about prophecy, he's generally talking more about almost like teaching that is God-centered. It, it, it's, it's less about the fortune-telling for Paul. It's less about even the really harsh word. It's more about somebody saying something and it's spirit-inspired. So you're like, oh, that was for me. That wasn't just you saying that. What you just did there, I think God just spoke through you. For Paul, it seems that that's more his use of prophecy. Okay, so in, in, in summary, with Paul, tongues, they're spirit-inspired words that appear to be directed primarily at God, or to God. It's a language that you only understand if someone interprets it for you. Prophecy, then, is understandable. That is spirit-inspired messages. It's directed at people that encourages them or challenges them in the God on any way. Okay, so let me offer another talk point, then. Let's go back, and then we'll go back to our text. So talk point number four when a spiritual gift, like tongues, isn't stewarded well, bad things happen. Bad things happen. Which is one of the main reasons that Paul's writing. Here's a great quote that speaks to that. Through the Though the Corinthians may have regarded such tongue speaking as the language of angels, they certainly employed the practice to generate a communal hell in which the gift that, according to Paul, was intended to lift up the whole church became the hinge pin of spiritual hierarchies. I have seen that happen. Gordon Fee puts it like this. How different that is from so much of church history. A parade of private spirit experiences has all too often been the first credential brought forward to authentic, authenticate ministry or spirituality. Anyone else witness that firsthand? It's amazing how 2,000 years later, and we even have 1 Corinthians 14, we keep repeating those same things in so many churches. We just keep elevating things that 
Paul says not to elevate and it distracts people. It leads to spiritual pride, all kinds of things. All right, let's go back to our text. Verses 6 through 15. Verses 6 through 15. All right, now brothers, sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, how will how we get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking to the air. There are doubtless many languages in the world. None is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to that speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. Okay, focus in on this here. My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. That word also is an important word. Before we continue with the text, I don't want to just pass these verses by. Because again, this is where people can overcorrect. 1 Corinthians is primarily a corrective letter. So Paul, of course, devotes a lot of attention. Here's how you're misusing the gift. But he also includes gems like the ones we just read. He said this is a gift. This is a gift. It's a beautiful gift. Beautiful gift. Paul talks about praying and singing with his mind but also with his, what? Also with his spirit. Also with his spirit. Paul would write a very different letter to people, churches and denomination, who correctly understand Paul as an effective missionary and master theologian, but don't understand how important this gift can also be and how his rich personal prayer life was at the center of that. That's what fueled all of those things. I couldn't agree more with this quote. A prayerless life is one of practical atheism. Can I give an amen to that? Paul doesn't only engage in one form of prayer. This is this is where I just to let you know, break the fourth wall here. I was praying with this with our group before we turned on the um, recording here. Um, a lot of conviction here. Um, we haven't been doing a very good job of this as a church. Paul doesn't just in, in, engage in one form of prayer or singing, as many Christians today tend to do. He sings with his mind, using words he understands. What does he also do in private? He sings with his spirit. He prays with his mind, using words he understands. What does he also do when he's alone? He prays with his spirit. When we don't know how to pray, Romans 8, 26-27, Paul says, the spirit can make intercession for us. And Paul uses language that appears to reference speaking in tongues in that passage. And when we find ourselves confronting evil spirits, Paul says, Ephesians 6, verse 18, says, pray in the Spirit, he says. Praying in the Spirit uniquely empowers us to bring forth a prayer that is aligned with God's will. And what does God say about those prayers? He answers those prayers. Pray, think, Lord, my will will be done. Let's go back to our text. You want to hear Paul flex? Look at this. We're about to see Paul flex. He does this from time to time, verse 16 through 19. All right, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone 
in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying. For if you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not built up. So now here's just flex. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. Nevertheless, in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. You know, here's another place my mind goes. Paul strategically flexes at different times. I would love to study, like, when is that appropriate? When is it not appropriate? When do you assert your authority and when do you not? Because he is very intentional about when he does. Well, in this instance, Paul boldly points out, he goes, I pray in tongues so often that I pray more than any of you. And I know that you value this gift, which again, I find convicting. And trying to honor what Paul teaches about the gift of the Holy Spirit and how that can, and the gift of tongues, how that can be misused. Do we so marginalize this gift that many people have never even seen or heard this modeled at our church? This important gift. Paul clearly values it. And many of us are so glad that we've had positive experiences with it. You know, so how do we steward it well in the church? I think that's worth wrestling with. It's also going to be worth wrestling with some passages that we don't have time to look at. We're already stretching the boundaries as it is. Um, like verses 20 through 25. It, they're, they're challenging ones because they appear to contradict themselves. And people who are honest about the scriptures are like, yeah, it does look like that. And so if you want a great place where you can have a more extended time to wrestle with that, that the Bible Project, the um, classroom videos, the one I've been recommending, they do a very good job of being honest to say, it looks like this is a contradiction. What do we do with that? And they offer three or so different explanations. But I love how they don't say it's clearly this because there's no clearly on that. I also, jumping ahead, the same is true for verses 33 through 38. They have a really challenging passage there. And it's one of two challenging sections of 1 Corinthians where Paul makes some statements about men and women in worship. And I love how the Bible Project also handles this because it's one of the few times I've ever heard someone honestly say, really, there is no one position that's not without its challenges. If you take the position of, well, this is clearly men are superior to, to women, that's got challenges. If you say it's all cultural, that's got challenges. I really appreciate how they wrestle with that. But here we go. Is because time is short, let's jump ahead to verses 26 to 20 through 33. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. For if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there only be two or at the most three. And in turn, let someone interpret. If there's no one to interpret, let each one keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the ones others weigh in on what is said. If a revelation is made and the other one's sitting there, let the first be silent. For you could all prophesy one by one so that you may all learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Now, one of the things I often see is people often forget Paul was writing to house churches. And they, they then assume that you can just apply this template to all size churches. It's not that, that simple. The big picture principle here is that it's important to have helpful structures in place. Um, especially that are valuable to to both Christians and people who are curious about Christianity. Paul concludes chapter 14 with these words. He says, So, brothers, sisters, eagerly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done what? Decently and in order. Tongues are valuable. Prophecy even more so. But here's one more takeaway I encourage you to take note of. Healthy, God-honoring churches, they take a Goldilocks approach to structuring worship services. It's really interesting to see if you look at, at, at Paul's writings, 
things that he wrote about 10 years later, Titus, Timothy, he starts saying, hey, you're also going to need elders. You're going to need bishops. You need some deacons. As this thing's growing, there's some more structures to it. Healthy churches take what I call a Goldilocks approach. You want to try your best to say, let's be open to anything the Spirit wants to do, and let's put those guardrails in place that the Scripture also instructs us to do. All right, that brings us to our invitation. Here's my invitation. Let's learn. Let's learn from those who've gone before us. Let's learn from things that Paul has written when you go off track. You know, here's some corrective. Let's learn from that. Let's be a people who welcome the presence of the Holy Spirit and let's do it on his terms rather than the the filters and things that we often bring in. Let's have our thinking shaped by the scriptures rather than imposing our own presuppositions or some kind of party line on what the Bible actually says. If you desire to experience more of the Holy Spirit, here's our invitation to you. It comes in the form of three questions. Here they are. Three questions for those who hunger and thirst for more. If you got a red letter Bible, that whole hunger and thirst, that's red letter stuff. If you, if you go to um, the words of Jesus, Matthew 5, 16, he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be what? Filled, he says. You want more? Hunger and thirst for it. And here's what that looks like. It looks like saying yes to Christ. Why do I say that? Because the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. If you want to just elevate yourself, if you want these these gifts for some other reason, other than becoming more like Jesus, that's not what they're for. So it all starts with, I want to become more like Jesus. Number two, are you asking, seeking, and knocking? Then you got a red-letter Bible. That's what Jesus says. He says, Matthew 7, 7, ask, it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And the, I'm under, my understanding of that language is it's, it's like, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And then number three is so vital, all this. As you're hungering and thirsting, are you hungering and thirsting with openness? Are you open to the fact that God might do something different with you than he's done with others? That he might do something different in a different season than he does with others? Are you desiring and trusting the giver above the gift, letting go of expectations that aren't anchored in scriptures? Are you open to do whatever God has for you in his timing? If so, I have good news. Our last blank. Imagine if a gift as desirable as tongues was one of the least desired gifts we experience regularly. When you think about how special tongues can be, imagine if our experience was true, but like Paul is saying, there's even greater things than that. Well, we went into overtime today. Thanks for digging in. Thanks for being patient with this. Now let's do this. Let's seal our time by praying this song. And I, I want to invite us to really pray it. Let's invite the Holy Spirit in our midst right now. Let's do that. And I want to invite you to do that at home as well.